is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, a daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, not ourselves. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu for today's show, at some point, the pandemic will end, at least we hope. So what happens when it does? We will ask what the world could look like post-pandemic. Research out of the UK finding people with long-haul COVID are not doing so well a year after getting sick. And California needs and uses a lot of water So why is the state now agreeing to cut how much water it gets from the Colorado River? San Francisco could become the first city in the country to make sure domestic workers like housekeepers get paid sick leave. We'll talk about that. Stores and police might be exaggerating just how bad shoplifting and retail theft has been lately. Bruce Springsteen selling his extensive song and publishing catalog, Why? And uh, tarot card and astrology readings. More and more people have been getting into those two since the pandemic. What can the stars tell us? There is COVID news nonetheless uh, that is just breaking. Yeah, it's this uh, CDC advisory panel, the vaccine advisors. They voted to change their recommendations for the vaccines to make it clear, and this is to to sum it up, make it clear that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, so the mRNA vaccines, are preferred over the Johnson & Johnson. And this is a, sort of a, a blow, not only not only to Johnson & Johnson, I, sus- I suspect, suspect, but for people who got it, because you remember way back, uh, way back a year or so ago. Uh, the it feels whole, like 10 years. Yeah, well, the whole thing about Johnson & Johnson was it was the one and done yeah, shot. It was the easy one. It was the easy one. Then it became, well, maybe you really need two after all. But there is this rare blood clot issue. And apparently the uh, CDC folks are saying that it's a little bit more extensive, that potential rare still, but potential side effect than originally thought. Yeah, it's it's nine people who have died, seven women, two men. Uh, We emphasize rare, but in the effort of trying to be as, you know, safe as possible, they they say the mRNAs are preferred. So, you know, if you were a J&J person first and you haven't gotten your booster yet, we know we can mix and match now. So go and get a Pfizer or a Moderna. And if you had the Johnson & Johnson, I think one of the messages they they are also sending is like, don't freak out uh, because it is. You're fine. Yes. As Mike said, it is a very rare thing. It's just that they want to err on the side of caution, and they're looking over the data, and they're saying, you know, uh, push comes to shove. you got these other vaccines that are out there, so get those. Make your appointments. Go to the pharmacy. Um, now we'll move on to what this could look like into, I don't know, let's fast forward like spring of 2022, because there's some epidemiologists out there and health experts talking about, you know what, maybe with this wave, it's going to be... Um, one of the last waves, and we can hope and we'll have our fingers crossed. We have Dr. Amesh Adalja with us. Doctor, um, let's stare into that crystal ball, even though it is murky. What does it look like maybe once we get into next year, if this pandemic becomes just an endemic virus? Does it become more seasonal? Uh, are we wearing masks only in winter and not in summer? What do you expect the end game for this is when it finally ends? Well, the virus is not going to be eradicated or eliminated. That's impossible. There is never going to be a time when there are not COVID-19 cases. There will always be a baseline number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. But what we'll see is the ability of the public will get better at risk calculation, and the ability of medical of the, of the medical field to deal with COVID will get better with 
oral antivirals, with more rapid tests, with a better understanding of the disease. So this will be something that we contend with, but it will become a tamer version because more people will be immune through vaccination and we'll have tools like antivirals to keep people out of the hospital. And the time frame in your mind that works is what? It's all dependent upon the time frame is not being set by the virus, being set by the unvaccinated. Um, so as they get infected or as they decide to get vaccinated, that's what's going to tame this virus is, is our immune systems. And what's happening right now is this should have been something that we had tamed long ago. Uh, but we've got about uh, 60 million Americans who are eligible to be vaccinated that are not. Uh, so I think the time frame is going to be sometime in 2022. I think that the, the Pfizer antiviral will help accelerate that because it will be highly effective at keeping uh, people from dying and out of the hospital if we have enough supply. Could Omicron be the thing that tames it because it's going to find the unvaccinated people because it is so contagious? And we know what that's going to mean to the hospital systems. And it's not good, but it could very well work its way through wide swaths of the population. And then that ends up doing this in, in, in the end. You know, we get there one way or another. Yes, I think that if you're not vaccinated right now, either Delta or Omicron is going to infect you. And, and I think that that's likely going to be the scenario. And it's going to be rough for certain parts of the country where they've got pockets of unvaccinated individuals that are going to then burden their own community hospitals. But I do think Omicron represents you know, a new face in this battle where you've got a, a variant that can get around immunity from prior infection, get around immunity from vaccination. But what, what, what it will do is it will kill people who are not vaccinated. It won't have the ability to kill people who are fully vaccinated because they'll be protected against serious disease. But I think in many ways, Omicron is uh, something that will be the kind of the last straw that, that gets to this unvaccinated population just based on what we're seeing in terms of the spread in many countries. You know, as we were beginning the uh, program, and we mentioned this on the air, the CDC is now sort of trying to, to move adults away from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, because of the rare but nonetheless uh, possible side effect of these uh, blood clots. What do you make of that? Well, I would have liked a more nuanced recommendation from the ACIP um, because we know that this rare condition that can occur with the J&J vaccine is not a universal risk. It really seems to be restricted to women of reproductive age. And I think that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine does have a major role because it's a single-dose vaccine. It's durable. It's working. So I think that this will still play a role uh, in our vaccination uh, campaigns, but I think it's been damaged by a lot of bad press. And I think it's important for those who are thinking about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, just remember that that risk for that blood clotting disorder is not something that uh, a 70-year-old man has to think about. This is really about females in reproductive age. So I think there could have been a more narrow or nuanced recommendation, but oftentimes with public health, they like, unfortunately, um, one-size-fits-all recommendations, and, <laughs> and that nuance gets lost. Dr. Amesh Adalja, Johns Hopkins, uh, we tagged him in for this, so we thank you for hopping on the line on a short notice there. A new study out of Great Britain shows most people with long-haul COVID who ended up in the hospital have shown little improvement one year later. It found those who are female, obese, and needed mechanical breathing assistance during their hospital stay were less likely to fully recover. With us now is Dr. Natalie Lampert, Associate Professor of Medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine. She also runs the Lampert Health Lab, studying long-lasting COVID symptoms. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So this is, by any measure, not good news. Uh, people I remember early on in this pandemic were hoping, doctors were hoping, that long-haul symptoms wouldn't be that long, but longer than expected? Well, it certainly is that way, yes. So this study you just talked about looked at patients who have been hospitalized, and 
it did find that the majority of them still had these really severe symptoms, these long COVID symptoms over a year later. A lot of the research I've done has looked at patients who never went to the hospital. They got COVID and they were recovering at home. And we found that many of those people also, you know, a year later, even more, many of them are not recovered either. Are we closer to an answer about why this sticks with people so long sometimes? Well, we're starting to understand the type of damage that's happened to the body that causes a lot of different symptoms. We don't always know why the damage has happened. So, for example, we found indicators that there's inflammation throughout the body, sometimes tissue damage. We think some um, nervous system dysfunction that can be causing the symptoms, but we still don't understand why all of those things happened due to COVID. So it's not that the virus, the coronavirus, is still doing, you know, uh, mischief in the body, is it? Uh, it's the inflammation and after effects from the virus, or is that not it? We're still figuring that out. There is research being done as we speak that's looking to see if um, there are, in fact, like virus particles or, you know, the virus persisting in people's system is causing these problems. But it seems like there are many different mechanisms or many different ways that the body is affected. So it may not be just one thing, but inflammation certainly is one of them. When someone comes to you and they have, you know, the severe fatigue and maybe it's affecting their work or their family life, and it's been this long, uh, you know, post quote unquote recovery, although they never recovered, what can you do for them, if anything, right now? Well, it's very challenging, um, and it does depend on the person and situation. If So I've studied what patients have reported that they've done themselves to try to recover. For some people, changing their diet to an anti-inflammatory diet. For some people, um, using some medications to try to deal with inflammation. Some of those things help, and it's difficult because for some long haulers, very slowly over time, they do recover. But for others, they're severely ill for a very long time, and not a whole lot is helpful yet, unfortunately. And what sort of symptoms are you seeing? Well, it's a wide range. So one study we did found over 100 long-term symptoms, but I'd say the most common ones are things like severe fatigue, brain fog, different type of muscle pain, joint pain, memory problems. So if you think about it, it's a lot of the really basic things that you need to be able to function, go to work, normal life. Dr. Natalie Lambert, she's working on it. Assistant Professor of Medicine, Indiana University School of Medicine, runs the Lambert Health Lab, studies those uh, long COVID symptoms. Coming up, maybe the shoplifting surge with all those smash and grab robberies isn't so much of a surge. There's some data showing it might not be worse than it already was before. And tarot cards are growing in popularity, thanks in part to the pandemic, we will get our tarot cards read on the air. What will we learn about ourselves? I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll hit the, the delay button so it does. If we don't yeah. like it, yeah, it's, it's off no, the if air. If it's no good, no, yeah. All right. The uh, Colorado River, big source of water for Southern California and other states. Uh, but this new deal is limiting the supply now. California, Arizona, Nevada reaching this agreement to limit how much they take. Uh, is now the time to be doing that. Adele Hajj-Khalil, general manager of the Metropolitan Water District. He was at this conference in Vegas where the deal was signed. Thanks for being here. So I guess people can see the couple signs, right? One, we got a limit because there's not that much water in the river as there usually is. It serves all these states. But also, we're getting low, so we need it, and we've got to get it from somewhere. Yeah, uh, good good to be with you. And and really what we are doing here, actually protecting our water that we bring in from, from the Colorado River, because as we know, the Lake Mead uh, and, and the drought contingency plan that sets the limits of how much water we can get 
is getting to a different level. So what we wanted to do uh, is to work together uh, with Southern Nevada and, and Arizona and the Bureau of Reclamation to put money to start uh, implementing more conservation across our region in Arizona, Nevada, and California to put system water in Lake Mead to bring the level up by about 16 feet. You know, we're putting $100 million from the three uh, agencies, Lower Basin States, and uh, the Bureau of Reclamation put $100 million. And we're not limiting our ability to bring water. It's actually putting system water to, left, to bring the level up so we can continue to bring water to Southern California because if the levels drop to a certain level under the uh, 1040 level, that means we have to take a cut and then we'll limit our ability to bring water in. So this is actually an action by all of us to say we need to work together to put water in Lake Mead to continue conservation. But the big thing here, the new climate that we're dealing with requires us to think differently and collaborate together and start the efforts across our region to conserve, recycle, and reuse, and create more local water supply, and do storage when we have to do storage. So this is the start of a process, but this is actually to protect our interest in California and the lower basins to ensure that we're not having to take drastic cuts, but actually help the system and help all of us work together. And, you know, it's uh, it's a great to see the collaboration from the right. federal government, the Bureau of Reclamation. So it's, uh, it's an exciting time for us to come together here. Okay, so I'm sure there are listeners who are thinking, well, you know, I am already conserving. I'm not using as much water as I used to use. Uh, the climate is changing. Uh, you know, this is sort of the who are in it for the long haul. What more can I do? What more can they do? So I think to me, Southern Californians have done a great job, but we need to, for now, continue looking for different ways. And Southern and Metropolitan Water District of Southern California is offering more rebates. And we're focusing on other things such as leaky pipes. Uh, if you're watering your lawn, you know, make sure that you turn it off during rain. You reduce it to a couple of days a, 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 um, a week. Uh, you know, if you have a leaky pipe or a leaky uh, toilet, we provide rebates for that. So what we're saying to folks, continue the ethics of conservation, but conservation is not going to get us out of this challenge of drought. And this drought is not going to be washed away with one rainstorm. This is something that we have to adapt to for the future because the snowpack is gone. And, and we've seen the same stress both on the Sierra uh, area and the state water project and in the uh, Colorado River. So really what we're saying, this is just a, a step in, in helping us. But what we want to do is now invest money in our regional recycled water program and recycling every drop of water, storing water when we have rain and we have water, we're going to build the system to move water around from the Colorado and from the state water project. But at the end of the day, what we need to do is diversify our portfolio and create a future of resiliency. And there's a commitment by our board in Metropolitan to work with every member agency across our region to do that. And, and this is just a step. It's a Band-Aid for, for this effort. But what we need is big, bold investments. And we're glad that we're talking to the governor's office, the state and the federal government to invest more money here because at the end of the day, we need to recycle every drop and conserve every drop and store water when we have water. Adele Hoskalil, General Manager of the Metropolitan Water District. Thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson, 
I'm Charles Feldman. So up in San Francisco, nannies, gardeners, house cleaners, they just won a major labor victory. Board of Supervisors unanimously passing a groundbreaking law requiring all domestic workers be paid sick leave. City could be the first in the country to offer the paid sick leave to these workers. Um, but basically, they're really close. So it's kind of the same system that is here. If You vote and then you can vote again and then the mayor signs off on it. So they're probably going to do this. And uh, it's like we said, if you're a domestic worker, you got to get the paid sick leave. And this covers nannies, house cleaners, gardeners. You kind of know the drill. So there's like 10,000 people in the city that work in, in these private homes doing all these things. And it's kind of a system where you can add up a little bit at a time. So for however many hours you work, you get an hour of sick leave and they tried to do that to figure out a way for people who work, you know, across multiple homes to, to, to right. have this in the system and then everybody kind of contributes. Well, I was going to say, and, and I'm sure people who are listening uh, are trying to figure out, well, who actually does the, the payment here? Do the uh, people whose homes, for example, are being cleaned, do they have to you know, pay a certain amount of money each time? And those are the important uh, questions. So we have County Supervisor uh, Hillary Ronan with us, co-sponsor of this measure. So to that question, where is the money for the sick leave actually going to come from? Well, the money for uh, the em- employees comes from the employers, um, but the money to create the app that will allow both workers and employers to easily uh, input their hours and their their rate of pay in, and then for the worker to be able to uh, sort of put together the, the small portions of sick leave that they earn from multiple different employers together, that will be funded by the city. And that was one of the big things here, right? And we were mentioning that before you got on, which is um, you got to try and figure out what to do with people who work across different households, like many of these workers do. And that was kind of a stumbling block before before this whole app idea was was put into place, right? Exactly. So domestic workers in San Francisco have had the right to paid sick leave uh, all the way uh, from 2007 on when our local sick leave legislation passed, uh, which entitles all San Francisco workers to one hour of paid sick leave for every 30 hours worked. The problem is there's been no real way for them to exercise that right because, you know, especially let's think about house cleaners. They might have 20 different clients and work for each individual client, you know, maybe four hours a month or something. So it it would take so long to accumulate a meaningful amount of time off. And the record keeping is so onerous that in, in reality, it doesn't happen. And so the legislation I put forward with the Domestic Workers Coalition was to 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 make it easy to create an easy way for both employers and domestic workers to 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 fulfill uh, their you know employers their responsibility domestic workers receive their right. So walk me briefly through how this works from the point of view of say a homeowner who has somebody come in you know once a week to clean. Sure. So as I said, that homeowner already has a responsibility under the law to provide sick leave. Probably most homeowners have no idea that they have that responsibility, and it's pretty much not enforced in the city. Uh, So now what will be possible is uh, domestic workers will have this this app on their phone that that will be available for free to, to them and to their employers. They can go to their employer and the city will do education and outreach in, in general in the city and say, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if you know this, but 
by law, you owe me one hour paid sick time for every 30 hours worked. And now there's this really easy way to comply with that obligation. And it's this app, you can download it yourself. And every time I work for me, for you, you know, you can put in, or I can put in, um, and, and the details of the app will be designed over, over the next year. Um, the, you, you know, but the idea is to make it super easy. You know, um, this person worked this hour, I pay her 25 bucks an hour. And so, um, you know, for, for this portion of hours work, I owe her a dollar or, you know, whatever it is. How do you, how does one distinguish though, between, uh, somebody who is a domestic worker, say, and somebody who might be considered a contractor? I mean, if you have a plumber in once a month or twice a month, is that the same thing? Well, plumbers are, um, so the, the definitions in the ordinance are very uh, specific. So plumbers are not included. Um, uh, you know, any sort of trades, licensed trades work is not included in the ordinance. So domestic worker is uh, basically defined as someone who cleans or improves your house is not licensed, um, but it does include workers that would be considered employees under California law or independent contractors. Um, so, so the independent contractor analysis doesn't come into play, but the type of work you're doing uh, does. And so it, it, the legislation specifically says it includes house cleaners, it includes nannies, but not if they're relatives or not if they're underage neighbors. It, uh, it does include gardeners, uh, but not plumbers or electricians or co uh, construction workers. So the, the, the legislation itself is pretty specific as to who's included and who isn't. All right. Hillary Ronan, San Francisco County Supervisor. Thanks. Over the last few weeks, you've probably been bombarded with news of major spikes in organized retail crime this holiday season. But have all the seen footage of the smash and grab robberies on the Internet? And we've all seen those. But are these incidents just really high profile or are they indicative of a bigger trend? Yeah, hard to ignore the alarm bells raised by organizations like law enforcement and uh, retail groups. Turns out the numbers they're reporting, they don't really add up. Uh, here to separate all this is uh, Jerry Ionelli, reporter at The Appeal, covering policing, and John Pfaff, professor at Fordham University's School of Law with a focus in statistics and criminal law. Uh, Jerry, let's start with you because you've been digging into some of the numbers and uh, they don't match up, right? Well, yeah, uh, there was a large piece in the uh, Los Angeles Times yesterday uh, that I hopefully I would strongly encourage everyone to read, uh, just sort of debunking the figures that a lot of these uh, retail groups, uh, it's a lot of companies like CVS, your Walgreens, Home Depot, uh, these major companies are citing these uh, statistics claiming that, uh, you know, these cities in California are losing billions and billions of dollars allegedly per year uh, in these organized retail Theft, alleged organized retail theft rings. Uh, and the LA Times yesterday did a fantastic story sort of actually wading through where those numbers are coming from. And they're mostly estimates that like really in no way actually kind of add up to truth. And I mean, it, it, a lot of this doesn't sort of pass the smell test uh, due to just the fact that, you know, uh, essentially these age, uh, retail groups would be losing billions of dollars a year. And uh, it's just like, doesn't pass the smell test. And uh, yeah, essentially we are uh, just sort of living through this kind of backlash era that we are uh, seeing from uh, law enforcement and from uh, these retail groups that are, are sharing these statistics that 
just don't match reality whatsoever. Um, we have, you know, folks like uh, Jamie McBride, the uh, union head in Los Angeles, uh, claiming that the city is like the purge. Uh, he also claimed that the city has seen murders that, uh, uh, like we haven't seen since the 1990s. Uh, he said that uh, on a TV station last month, uh, and that just doesn't match reality whatsoever. I mean, if you walk around the streets of Los Angeles, it is clearly not like the purge. And uh, moreover, those the, the murder statistics that we are seeing, uh, they're concerning. There was a rise in murders around the country uh, in the last year, and, and no one's sort of discounting that. But to claim that this is some sort of spike that is unprecedented in American history or uh, worse than we've ever lived through before, which is the rhetoric that we're seeing from police departments, uh, is just simply not true. I mean, Los Angeles... Uh, in the 90s, often hit more than 2,000 murders a year. And uh, at the moment, the city is, you know, unfortunately hit about 375. But to compare that to right. decades we've lived in before, it's just not true. Okay. So, John, is this uh, what Jerry was just talking about? Is this a case of, uh, you know, you can kind of make statistics do anything you want with them if you know how to sort of play the game? Or is there something more sort of sinister going on here? Because it almost sounds as if a lot of people are deliberately lying. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be a combination of both. I mean, I think it's important to understand that the way we gather our numbers is really messy and poor, the infrastructure is really poor. And so it makes it easy to have sincere mistakes appear a lot. But I think it's also incredibly important to realize you know, both these groups, the retail associations and the police, they're both very political actors, right? You know, the retail associations have a very strong political incentive to make things look bad because as that LA Times article makes clear, creating a theft loss program is incredibly expensive. Target, Home Depot, they don't want to do that. So they can make things look really bad so that we invest in the policing to get them to do that for them. That saves, not only that we might that cut down on theft, but it will save those companies millions of dollars in training, right? They're trying to sort of externalize those costs on, on all of us. Even more concerning, I think, is you have to really appreciate that the police are a political institution as well, right? I think we view the police very much as these sort of objective relayers of what is happening on the ground. And that's, that's simply not the case. They are facing more intense political scrutiny than they have since the civil rights era, right? This is basically a second civil rights era and they are very much under intense scrutiny right now. And they have a very strong incentive to push back against that. And so they, they really do have a very powerful incentive to push the facts as hard as they can, to, to use hyperinflated language, make things seem far worse than they are because they are facing intense political threats. Their budgets have faced no scrutiny for decades now. And now, I mean, what we the cuts we've seen are, are negligible by and large, but but compared to nothing in the past. Like it, it's a real political shift and they are very much political actors and their statements should be viewed the same scrutiny. We view any political action committee campaigning in its own self-interest. And John added to all this is the videos, right? Because we mentioned those. It's almost like we had some of these back to back and everybody saw at least one of them on security cameras. So it's an issue that everybody knows about. So you can talk about it because you know, you've got the audience out there. Right. And, and the videos are really shocking and they grab our attention. But, you know, like the, the same thing that the Times article says, like these videos are relatively new. We didn't have this kind of footage a couple of years ago. So it looks different now because we can see things now that we just couldn't see even five or six years ago. And so it makes things emotionally feel perhaps much worse than they are because images are such a more powerful way of, of showing these kinds of events. John Pfaff, professor at Fordham University's School of Law, focuses in statistics and criminal law. And uh, Jerry Ionelli, reporter at The Appeal, covers policing. Thanks to you both. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. So, Bruce Springsteen, you know who he is, you know what he's done over the past several decades. He's now selling his extensive music and publishing catalog to Sony Music for $500 million. Now, this would be one of the most lucrative music catalog deals in the music industry. It passes Bob Dylan's sale of his work to Universal Music Group for around $400 million. So does the boss really need the money? With us is Peter Chotti, chairman of Deep Cuts Media. He's facilitated numerous music intellectual property transactions at the likes of Prince and Air Supply. Peter, thanks for being with us. So I know uh, when people hear about people like Bruce Springsteen selling stuff, you know, that, that's really important to him uh, for the money. The first reaction is, well, you know, it all comes down to money after all. Right. But d- does a guy like him really need that money? Well, that's a great question, and I think that, first of all, no matter how much money that people have, there's always uh, you know, the urge for most to want more. So there, there's definitely money is a central part of it. But it does go beyond that. Uh, when you start getting into these transactions, you also it's, it, there's a pattern here that it's more of the, you know, those who are the elder statesmen or statespeople in the music industry. And so as you start getting older, there's estate planning reasons. You know, what happens to your legacy? Where do the songs, the control of your songs go and the story goes? And so that is a very big driver as you start thinking about your legacy. Who is going to be the one who controls your legacy and make sure that it's in the right hands and, um, and, and also expanding it into new generations? So how many rules can go along with it? Because I guess from the outside, we can all think, oh, now it's all these songs we know are going to show up in commercials that otherwise he would not have wanted. But can you negotiate before and say, you know, these kind of things or, or, or what can you do with it? Or, or is it totally hands off? Because you gave me $500 million, so go and do with this as you please. <laughs> it all depends on how much uh, negotiating room you have. So you can imagine for somebody like Bruce Springsteen, he he will have an ability to, with uh, substantial control still. Um, there, absolutely, the buyer needs to be able to know that they can do things with the catalog that, that they're buying because what they're doing is they're betting on the fact that they can increase the earnings over time than they otherwise would be. So that's the way that they're thinking about it. But certainly, if somebody has bargaining position and you know the bigger artists that they are, they're going to be able to set certain controls in the contract. But you got to understand on all these deals, they're very, very idiosyncratic. They're all different. And um, each each major term is negotiated in a different kind of way. Well, I mean, for example, uh, we were talking about this before off air. If somebody like Springsteen, let's say he sells Born to Run as part of the catalog, I presume he does. Uh, he goes to a concert tour and he plays Born to Run. Who does he owe the money to? Well, you're going to have... Um, when you're talking about the rights that are associated with the public performance of a composition, as an example, then the rights holder, so that's going to be the buyer, is going to get the earnings from that. But for the live performance themselves, Bruce is still going to be monetizing Bruce, and he'll still be monetizing his merchandise. And so it doesn't mean that he's not going to be getting any more dollars into his pockets. In fact, the buyer is going to want the uh, the artist to be out there doing as much as they can. And they're happy if the artist is making more money for themselves, too, because the more visibility that the artist has, that means that we're going to be listening more. 
um, to the music. We're going to be streaming more of their music. And that's how songs get extended in terms of their impact and their legacy. And one more, one more really important point. It's not just about streaming and the music industry growing that way. Bruce is also, he has a story. He has a great story. So you can imagine there will be a feature film that's based on Bruce, and that will be part of the overall deal. There's, I have no doubt that those kinds of um, terms are going to be referenced in that kind of a transaction. So we don't have to cry for him. I don't think there needs to be any tears for, for him. But it's but it does go beyond the money. So if people think that it's only the money, I mean, obviously that is the substantial driver. But control of legacy is a critical thing as artists age. And you can imagine, you want your songs and your persona to be in the right hands. You don't want your heirs to be fighting over it, like what happened in the Tom Petty situation. Uh, and that's, that's a big driver for entering into these deals. And by the way, one more thing, tax mitigation. So if you... If you enter into a transaction like this, there can be long-term capital gains treatment. So there is that part of estate planning that comes into it, too. Peter Chaudy, chairman of Deep Cuts Media. Thanks. I'm going to sell my catalog. Yeah, great. I don't have any. 25 bucks. (laughs) You think I can get that much? (laughs) Scam somebody into it. I remember when, uh, this is one of the more interesting lines, remember when toilet paper and hand sanitizer sales shot through the roof early in the pandemic? Well, you know what else became popular? Tarot cards, sales of tarot cards were already on the upswing among young people. But then, then there was a massive surge once the pandemic hit. Yeah, people are looking for answers, right? What do their lives hold? Uh, when's this going to end? A couple people with us, Janet Scialis, the star goddess, astrologer, and also Sky Marinda, tarot card reader from Washington, D.C., started reading cards for other people during the pandemic. Sky, let's start with you. What do you think it is about the pandemic that got people more interested in this? I think like anybody, people want to know what's going to happen. And tarot cards are a way to do that, to think about how can I help myself in this situation when nothing is in my control. And, and Janet, is that the same with uh, astrology? Have you found that more people are interested in uh, astrology readings because of the pandemic? Oh, pandemics are great for business. <laughs> They're wonderful for business because anytime you have the unknown, and, and we, we all, we, I think tarot cards and astrology are popular on a regular basis because of the very reason she said they want to know what they can do to be prepared for any kind of an outcome. It's sort of like why we watch the weather on TV. It's like I can't change the fact that it's going to rain tomorrow, but I'm not going to wear suede shoes if it's going to rain. And so it's, it's, it's Good a modest, idea. You know, <laughs> You know, that's sort of what we want to do. And so astrology, astrology and tarot cards are basically trying to divine the energies that will be available during a given point in time. I personally like tarot cards because they show a picture. And you can actually pick up the picture and go, who does this look like in this life? When the night is coming in, which rules, um, you know, men, you can see whether it's got dark hair, light hair, red hair, you know, that kind of a thing. Where astrology deals a lot more with timing the when something will happen rather than the what will happen. Okay, Sky, uh, what do people see or what do you see? How do those cards work? Yeah, I see them as being best used to use them as self-reflection to see what can I do, what is missing and what I'm doing that can really help my situation. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think both of you, uh, I think, uh, Janet, uh, you're going to give uh, Mike and me our, our astrological reading. And, Sky, I think you're going to read our tarot cards. Is that right? 
Yeah, who wants to go first? Yeah, maybe Jan. I'll let Sky. I'll let Sky go first. Okay, okay Sky, so, go first. Sky, sir, you, over you, to Sky. Yeah, Sky, Sky. Why did the tarot card show for Mister Simpson here? Okay, so for Charles, oh, that's me. We have. Oh, okay. It's okay. <laughs> Good. We have the Page of Wands, and so that is the element of fire. And this card is really about having the student mindset. It's being open to learning and trying new things. So this year, what's really important for you to do is to be open to doing things that are totally new for you. You don't really know what you're doing and really expand yourself that way. Well, are, you're right. are, you, are you going to enjoy that? Yes, because yeah. I, I, she's right. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. Bingo. What about Mike here? Um, and Mike, you have the King of Pentacles, which like, I don't like to label cards good or bad, but honestly, this one's kind of good to get. Um, it's the element of earth. And this one is about your finances and your home being really settled, like feeling like everything is coming together. The one challenge, I guess, that can come with that is really allowing yourself to enjoy what you have and where you are in life. Okay. I like mine. Yeah, I, I'm going to borrow money from you. Uh, <laughs> Janet, uh, what's in the stars for uh, Mike and me? What I would tell both of you is, Mike, you're a Taurus because you're born April 5th, right? Is that right? You're a Taurus? April 5th. I think I'm okay. Aries. I don't oh, know. That's Aries. I'm yeah. sorry. You're an Aries. Um, for you, Charles, there's a bigger change going on this year. Mike, your changes all occurred in 2021. For you, Charles, your changes all occur in 2022. And they're the same type and variety of changes that are very positive for you um, that you first saw in 2004. Because the eclipse cycle has gone into your sign, and it'll be there for the next 18 months. So over the next 18 months, I'm guessing you've got some sort of contract. And I thought it was interesting. She pulled up the page, because pages are always messengers. Um, and I think you've got some sort of contract and negotiation that goes very favorably for you in 2022. I'm going to so put you. Could... On, I'm going to put you on the phone with my boss. Well, <laughs> I, I think that... you now have someone in here yeah. for contract negotiations. <laughs> you know, you you can look back to the 2004 time and see similar energy available, but you're a little bit older, a little bit wiser, and probably can negotiate a little bit better than you did then. I'm not going to say on the air, but the 2004 thing is an interesting year that she picked. See, this is why people like this stuff. Yes, but it's an interesting year that she picked. So, okay. so Sky, how has it been for you over the pandemic? Because now we kind of set the scene of what people can get when they would you know, talk to one of you. So is this like something that you do over Zoom or is it in person? I guess you could do, do these cards either way. And then it's kind of like that introspection thing, right? It's very, you know, we're not going to read the crystal ball and see your future. But, you know, what do I need to think about? And then, uh, you know, how can I kind of settle myself down? Because I bet a whole bunch of people come to you super anxious because, uh, hey, this is a world we're living in. Yeah, I do them over Zoom. And I've had a lot of people this year who are like, I've never done this before. I don't know how this works. They're kind of nervous, but it's totally nothing to be intimidated by. Nothing wild happens. We're just kind of looking at your life and how things are going and where you want them to go. But do either of you ever see uh, what you interpret as bad things? And if so, <laughs> do you tell them? Yeah, do, do you I tell do, people? You do. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly do. I absolutely do. They, I mean, the good stuff, you go, yay, it's going to happen. I want to know what disaster is going to befall me and what can I do to take, you know, to make sure to ameliorate that particular outcome. My clients want to know when they're going to get paid and when they're going to get um, some action. That's what they want to <laughs> okay. know. And they're very specific about it. They want to know. They want to know stuff like, 
You know, when do we get back to normal? When does this pandemic end? Well, you know, I, do we have know, answers? That's the kind of thing they want what to can you see in the stars about when all this is finally over for us? Do, well, you want the truth or do you want me to lie to you? No, 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 no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell us the truth. Okay. This, this, we had our first case of this particular epidemic in the United States on January 20th of 2020. And that's, that's the first day that the sun was in the sign of Aquarius. Saturn, the planet of restriction and delay, also went into Aquarius right about that same time. It does not leave that sign till the 2023 time span. So I, I, think, I think that we have another year of this jazz and that we will not be celebrating, ooh, happy days of year again, back to normal, until the beginning of January 2023, unfortunately. You should have lied to also, us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to tell you it was different, but, you know, as right. far as, you know, where we can go out, drink for us, carry on, have a good time, talk to people, and, and not really think about, oh, my God, where's my mask? Well, so. you know, we were happy about the good stuff she told us. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll have hang to take, our hats on that. We'll have to take the bad stuff in stride. And that's life, right? Yes. Janet Scalis, the star goddess, astrologer, and uh, Sky Marinda, tarot card reader from D.C., started reading the cards for people during the pandemic. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, we, we, we want the truth. That's right. Yes. <clears throat> An ever-ending quest to get the truth. Yeah, I mean, we have our employers to lie to us. <laughs> <laughs> so we want the truth from, from astrologers. Uh, all right, we're back tomorrow. <laughs>